wasn't too long ago that I had to get out to Union Boulevard, and I'm not very familiar with that area. So I punched in the address on my GPS on my phone, and I'm, I'm driving out there, and I thought, this is really odd, because it's taking me from my house in Forks to Nazareth, through the back roads of Nazareth over to 191, and all the while I'm looking and it's saying 37 minutes and I'm going, I've been out there before, I know it's not that long, and I'm kind of thinking maybe it's all the road construction that's, that's happening, maybe it was a, an accident on the highway. I mean, I thought it would take me Route 78 or Route 22, it's taking me all these back roads. I could not figure out what it was until all of a sudden I remembered. Just a few weeks before, I was on a motorcycle ride, and I was leading it, and I checked one of the settings in my GPS that said to avoid highways. And all of a sudden, I realized this is why it's taking me all of these back roads. And that little change, just one little setting click, changed a 20-minute ride into a meandering 37-minute journey. And our church is on a journey, and it's urgent that we get there. Here's the journey. The Cornerstone family of churches exists to bring glory to God. That's our journey. That's where we want to go. That's our goal. That's our destination. But we need to check the right settings if we're going to get there, and the settings are our core values. We want to be a church that glorifies God that will, and that will happen as we increasingly become a church that is making disciples. Here's the settings. We want to be a church that is making disciples of Jesus, who love God, grow together, and serve others. And in order for us to understand this, we're on the second week of an 11-week sermon series, and it's going to teach us what it really means if we boil that purpose statement down. What does it really mean to love God, grow together, and serve others? Last week, if you were here, and if you weren't, I would really encourage you to listen to that sermon. It's really the foundation, the starting point for this series, but we looked at what it means to love God. To love him in such a way that we exalt him as our highest pursuit, that would be the way that we would love God that brings glory to him. And today we're going to see what it looks like to love God so greatly that we value obedience to his word as our greatest authority. And I'm going to say that again because this really sets the tone for everything that we're going to see in this passage today. We're going to look at what it looks like. We're going to see what it looks like to love God so greatly that we value obedience to his word as our greatest authority. Well, I hope you have your Bibles out. We are a church that preaches God's word. You are going to always be put into God's word when you come to this church. I don't know why any church would preach anything other than God's Word. A lot of them just wax eloquent with stories and narratives. That's not what we do. We want to get you into the living and active Word of God. So let's get the Bible open to John chapter 14. If you're using one of the Bibles that are right in front of you, it's page 901. But can I ask every single person to be looking at the Bible? John chapter 14, we're going to start at verse 15. And I'm just going to read a few verses. 
Jesus is speaking. It is just hours before he's going to be crucified. He is in what is called the upper room, right into the middle of the city of Jerusalem. And he's speaking to his disciples, and one of them had already left. Do you remember the story? Probably Judas, the betrayer, he had already left. And now he's got 11 disciples. He's pouring his final teachings into them. In verse 15, John chapter 14, he begins like this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, I'm going to bring out four parts to this. Here's the first. Loving Jesus and obedience to him are inseparable. And that's really easy to memorize. I hope this echoes into your heart the entire week. Loving Jesus and obedience to him are inseparable. Now, let's just listen to what Jesus said again, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So he's establishing an unbreakable connection. Very simple, right? I mean, nothing's complicated of what I'm going to share with you today. He's just establishing a connection between loving God and obeying him. Now think in your mind for a second, things that just go together. Peanut butter and jelly, macaroni and cheese, Miley Cyrus and crazy. I mean, there's just things that you can't separate. They go together, one without the other. It just leaves you with a sense that something is missing that really shouldn't be missing. It's like separating identical twins or taking the red, white, and blue out of the American flag. It's just that goes together. Loving God and keeping his commandments. They just cannot be parsed apart from one another. But I'm going to strengthen that a little bit. You ready? Loving God without obeying him now, hang with me. This is really not an abstract. Loving God without obeying him is not just terrible. It just is impossible. Now, do you see how we strengthen that? It's just not possible to love God and not obey him. Now, let's think for a second because you can obey God without loving him, but you cannot love God without obeying him. And I'm really going to bring it into clarity with this statement. All disobedience that we will ever commit betrays a lack of love for God and an overwhelmingly abundant love for ourselves. Now, let's test that for a second. Just think back. I don't think, if you're like me, you're going to have to go very far in your memory lane. Just go back to maybe one of the most recent sins that the Lord has convicted you about. May have been an hour ago, may have been 10 minutes ago, it might have been yesterday. I don't think it was even that far ago as yesterday. We are just consummate sinners. We're actually really good at it. So think back to the, the, the most recent time that God convicted you about a sin. And I will tell you in that moment, 
whether you heard it clearly or not, the Spirit of God was saying or asking you a question, who do you love most right now? God or yourself? And like me, if you commit that sin, if you walk down the path of temptation and you actually give fruit and give birth to that sin, I will guarantee you, I will promise you theologically and practically, you were loving yourself more than you were loving God. All disobedience, let's just, you might as well just confront yourself with this truth. Embrace yourself, God said to Job, like a man or like a woman, and handle it and admit it. All disobedience betrays a lack of love for God and an overwhelming, abundant love for yourself. After all, this does make a little bit of sense, right? It just rings hollow when someone tells you that they love you and then they cheat on you. Or stab you in the back or never reach out in your time of need. That really doesn't sound like love. That doesn't really look like what love looks like. And our love for God will be seen clearly in our obedience to him. Now, I'm going to turn this a little bit, just slightly. Now, I'm going to get you to think a little bit more deeply. We can look at this a little differently. And when you do, it's going to go a little bit more deeply. Put an engine in a race car and you can reach incredible speeds, right? Throw a breaker and you can light up a building. Put gas in the tank and you can travel. You put money in your account and you can use your debit card. Now, all of those have a common denominator. I'm going to put it this way. No engine, no speed. No breaker, no light. No gas, no travel. No money, no withdrawal. One is possible because the other one exists. And here's where we get back to John 14, 15. If your heart is full of love, if that's the engine in the race car, the gas in the tank, the money in the account, the breaker in the building, if your heart is full of love for God, you will have the desire and the power or the ability to keep Christ's commandments. Why? Because they're going to be more precious to you than disobedience. You're going to want to. And it will become unthinkable to not keep Christ's commands. And Christian, it is true. Yes, it is true. We've got the obligation to obey. After all, he is our Lord and Savior. But thankfully, the good news is that the Spirit of God is providing the power and the willingness to obey. Now, I want you to look at the New Living Translation's version of Philippians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 12, 13. Watch what it says. It's put in a really good language. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. What's that look like? Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. That word fear means awe and astonishment. But then the little bridge word, the preposition for, actually precedes it. Here's how you can do that. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So I'm going to actually reverse that. God is working in you, Christian, to give you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Because he's working, because he put the engine in the race car and the gas in the tank and the money in the 
in the account, now you can work out your salvation or you can work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Do you see what makes it possible? We can obey God because the Spirit of God is putting into our hearts a love for Him that is so great that it is greater than your love for yourself. I'll tell you what this looks like. I've experienced this. I'm pretty sure a lot of you have too. Have you ever battled a particular weakness in your flesh, a susceptibility, a vulnerability, a disposition towards a sin? And for years, you had periods of victory and then crushing periods of defeat. And then one day it dawns on you that you haven't failed in that area for a while. And in fact, your desires have changed because you don't even want to commit that sin anymore. And maybe it was an explosive temper. Maybe it was an, a gossiping tongue or exorbitant, exorbitant spending in debt. You don't even recall when the change happened in you, but something is different with your desires. If you've ever experienced that, that's the work of the Spirit of God. That's what the gospel does in the hearts of his children. That's the work of the gospel of grace deep within your heart, changing you from the inside out, giving you new desires, replacing your old sinful desires. And it happens as you walk with God every day, as you love his word, let the living and active word do its job. It's surgery in your heart and you're praying and you're listening to him throughout the day and you're loving him more and more. That's what it means to keep in step with the spirit to walk with God. Now, we're not yet done with John 14, 15. Can I ask you to look at it again? I really want you to notice something. And by the way, if you have the King James version, it's going to say something differently than any other text. Did you notice that there's not a command here, but a promise? And by the way, I'm actually betting that most of you didn't really draw that out. And neither did I. The King James Version actually translates it wrongly. It translates it as a command. If ye love me, keep my commands. But it's not a command. There is no command here. The text actually reads, if you love me, you will keep my commands. It's a promise. It's a guarantee that Christ is making. Because we're never going to sustain obedience to God out of moral obligation or fear. You can try that for a while, but it's not going to work. It will not sustain itself. You're not going to obey him if you're trying to get, get in a good place with God. It's just not going to work. You're not going to obey him if you think that God will be happy if you do such and such. And he won't be angry as long as they don't break that command. Listen, that just doesn't work. It doesn't sustain itself. If you really want to overcome a sin, don't try harder to obey God. Oh, that sounds heretical. If you really want to overcome a sin and you want to learn to obey God, don't try harder to obey. You're actually inciting your flesh. Focus on loving God more. The antidote for disobedience is never obedience. It is love for God. And when you love Jesus Christ, you will want to keep 
his commands. And he's provided a way for us to grow in that very thing. Point number two. That was a big point. That was the foundation. Point number two. Loving Jesus and obedience to him are impossible without his help. Did you hear that? I'm afraid somebody maybe not, didn't quite get that. Loving Jesus and obedience to him are impossible without his help. It's just not something we can do through moral effort. In the Evangelical Free Church of America, that's our denomination, there's an ordination process. It takes about three years to be ordained in the EFCA. And years ago, 2004, December is when I was ordained, but it was a three-year process. And about a year and a half in, I had to submit a 32-page paper on my doctrinal positions. And then I had to appear before a council. This was actually the first of two times I had to do that. The first time, this one, I had to define what I believed. And they're going to ask me all kinds of questions to see if I really actually know what I believe. And then the second time, it really ramps up. Now I've got to defend what I believe. That's how you get ordained in the EFCA. And I'm in that first council, I'm defining what I believe, and one of the pastors asked me this question. He actually, actually was one of my best friends. Note the was. He said, how was the Holy Spirit's activity in the Old Testament different than his activity in the New Testament? And it was one of those moments when my mouth took off without my brain, and after it finally stopped, everybody in that entire room knew I did not know the answer to that question. That was the only question that stumped me. And then they began to help me see that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come and go on a saint, but in the New Testament, he came to dwell in believers. He doesn't come and go any longer. He takes up residence inside the Christian. In the Old Testament, he would come, take Samson, and give him power, and then he would depart. And Jesus explains this to the young church that he is pastoring. Look at verse 16, John 14. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you, now look at it, and he, and he will be in you. Now, this is a major change from the Old Testament, and it would have absolutely astonished the disciples. So, Christian, I know you're really well acquainted with the person of, of Jesus and his work, but when it comes to the Spirit of God, things might get a little bit fuzzy pretty quick. He's not in it. He's a divine person. He's not an impersonal power that one taps into like the Star Wars force. James Montgomery Boyce, who's no longer alive, he pastored down in Philadelphia, he said it this way, if we think of this, the Holy Spirit as a mysterious power, our thoughts will continually be, how can I get more of the Spirit of God? But if we think of the Holy Spirit as a person, our thoughts will be, how can the Holy Spirit get more of me? The first thought is pagan, the second is New Testament Christianity. So here we go. God dwells in every Christian in the person of the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of Christ, the Bible says, in us through the Holy Spirit. 
And he is working in us as we walk with him, relying on him, responding to him. He's helping us to obey the commands of Jesus. How? By increasing our love for him. And what will be the result? The Spirit of God who lives deep within our hearts will work to change our desires, empowering us to love God with all of our hearts so we will want to keep his commandments. Here's what I've said so far, and it's utterly critical that you stay with me on this because we're about to launch into point number three. Here's what Jesus has said. If you love me, if love for God fills your heart, you will keep my commandments. Not because you are knuckling down and you are trying harder with moralistic effort and energy. It's because the love of God changes your heart. You want to obey Jesus. And when you don't obey Jesus, like when I don't obey Jesus, it's because your love for yourself, my love for me, was greater than my love for Jesus. So the Spirit of God goes at war against our flesh and increases our love. The goal, then, is to not try harder to obey when we are disobedient. It is to love God more. And the result will be a changed heart that seeks to obey His commands. That's the motivation of the Spirit, and it gets us to point number three. Loving Jesus and keeping his commandments becomes a glad submission to his authority. Let me say it again. Loving Jesus and keeping his commandments, now look what it does when the Spirit of God begins to work in your heart. It becomes a glad submission to his authority. Now, you know this. I've told you this before. There are no, in the Greek or the Hebrew language, there are no exclamation points. There are no underlying bold italic devices. They don't have a way to emphasize something strongly unless they use superlatives or repeat themselves. So whenever you see repetition in Scripture, you're seeing exclamation points, underlying bold italics. This is really important. You've got to get this. And look what Jesus does. Verse 21, he's going to say it again. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. Now he's just approaching it the, wrong, the other direction. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. It's the same exact thing coming from the other direction. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Here, it's whoever has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me. And now look at verse 15. Look at verse 21. The word keep, the same word. It means to watch and to guard. And we're able to do this, and we are to do this, with not just the commandments of Jesus in the Gospels, which some people narrow, but all the Bible. Look at verse 23. Jesus says word. And then later he's going to say words. Listen, you've got to see me for a second. Can you look up here? This is so critical. The entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the living, it's the written word of the living word of God. It is all written from Jesus. Don't think that you only get the words of Jesus when you get to Matthew and the red letters. The entire Bible is the Word of God. Therefore, it is the authority over all of us. The Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of Jesus Christ, and it is the revealed will of God for us. 
and it's able to give us a life of joy and satisfaction. Listen, if you don't know what God's will is, I will probably tell you that you're likely not in the Word of God because He begins to reveal it to you in His Word. The Bible has been consistently attacked all the way back from Genesis 3. And it has been unrelenting since, because why? It is the authority of God. Listen, you've got to try to deconstruct God's word if you're going to find your own authority. And this is what the devil does. This is what liberal theology does. You've got to tear it down. You've got to poke holes in it. You've got to find a way to undermine its relevancy, that there's mistakes in the Bible. Therefore, you can't really trust it. You deconstruct, and then you reconstruct it where you've got the authority authority. That's always the strategy of the devil. And throughout human history, people have tried to live in freedom from God. And if you're going to be able to do that, they think you've got to reduce the authority, the accuracy, and the relevancy of God's word. I'm giving an example. You may never have heard of Joseph Fletcher, but he helped originate a morality called situational ethics, which I think a lot of you have heard of, which has permeated our culture in America. And by the way, listen, it has found its way into the church over and over. It teaches that anything is permissible, God's okay with it, as long as it does not seem to hurt anyone. Joseph Fletcher, he's famous for saying, only love is a constant, everything else is a variable. As long as you're doing it in love, it doesn't matter to God. That's situational ethics. Let me tell you where it comes into the church. And we see it over and over. A former teen in my youth ministry called me not too long ago, doesn't live in the area any longer, asking me to do her wedding. And it didn't take long when I actually met with her and her fiancé, whom I absolutely love. I love both of them. I loved her when she came up through our youth ministry. I still do. But it didn't take me long to find out that they were living together. And I asked her, can you explain to me why you're living together before marriage when I know I taught you your entire youth ministry not to do that, and I know your parents really well because I'm close to them, and I know they taught you not to do that. Now, here's her answer, and this is situational ethics, and she doesn't even know it comes into her theology. We're in love, and we know we're going to get married so it felt natural to live together. Yet God's word says three times in just the book of Song of Solomon that you stir, not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That's in a sexual connotation. It means don't arouse sexual intimacy until you've got the green light of marriage because you're not going to put that genie back in the box. And since the 1970s, and I can show you these studies, they have proven consistently that living together before marriage has a 33% higher rate of divorce than those who, want to, who wait to live together until after marriage. That's been true since 1970, since they began studying this. Because of the 60s, everybody started living together. So they began to study this. And by the way, now it's rampant in the church. 
and you wonder about God's authority. And the way you do it, you've got to deconstruct God's authority, saying we're in love, and God's okay. No, he's not. God is holy. And what he has written in the word of God is infallible. It is still in effect today, and he expects it to be obeyed. And if it's not obeyed, I will tell you what's going on. You love yourself more than God. There's not a glad submission to the authority of God revealed in his word in any of us, me included, when we walk the path of disobedience willingly. And God's purpose for our church, Cornerstone, is that we will be a community of Christians whose love for God moves us to love his word as our greatest authority and seek his gracious, generous power to live according to it. But how? How does all this come together? And that's point number four, my final point. Loving Jesus and obedience to him, friends, listen, it is a lifelong process of growth. I'm going to say it again. Loving Jesus and obedience to him is a lifelong process of growth. John, the writer, won't leave this thought of love for Jesus that produces obedience to him because all the way at the end of the book, and I'm going to invite you to turn there in 22, chapter 22, now he's going to illustrate what it looks like in a conversation between Peter and Jesus. And you may know this, but Peter, Jesus had already died, and Peter right before it had denied him three times and ran off sobbing and weeping into the night as a failure. And Jesus had risen back to life, and he said, meet me in a few weeks in Jerusalem. And Peter took six other disciples. He went back to the Sea of Galilee and went back to what he knows he could do well, fishing. And he's out on the Sea of Galilee. He's in a boat, and he sees somebody on the shore walking who calls out to them in the boat. And when he realized that that was Jesus... Peter jumps in, he thro- the text says he throws himself in. That's a violent word of action. He threw himself in, he swam to shore, and Jesus soon looked at his fallen, miserable disciple, and he had a conversation with him. And you can pick it up in chapter 21, I'm sorry, chapter 21, verse 15. Simon, Jesus asked, Son of John, do you love me more than these, more than the other disciples? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He drops more than these. He's really drilling deep into Simon's heart. And Peter said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus takes the scalpel and performs the surgery that gets him all the way to dividing the thoughts and the attitudes of his heart. He said to him again for the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
But at this point, Peter is grieved. The Bible calls that godly sorrow. Listen, there's a world of difference between misery and brokenness. Misery is when you justify your actions, you hate your condition, and you blame somebody else. Brokenness is when you finally accept the responsibility and you look up to God for help. He is broken. He is grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three times he asked Peter, do you love me? Do you know what he's doing? He's bringing Peter to godly sorrow so that he would repent of his disobedience. But the real problem was not Peter's disobedience, for the very question Jesus asked shows us what Peter's problem really was. He loved himself more than Jesus. That's always the problem in disobedience. And it really moves us. Now, let's be really careful with this, and let's be very, very brave with this. Let's move the questions of Jesus to ourselves. And you've got to ask that question of you as it echoes into you from the words of Jesus. And I've got to do it for me. And I'm going to ask you, as you hear that, do you love me, whispering into your soul ever more deeply every time he asks. I want you to listen closely, and you're going to hear something more in his question. Do you love me more than, and you've got to fill out that blank. Do you love me more than money? Do you love me more than beauty? Do you love me more than popularity? Do you love me more than retirement security? Do you love me more than porn? Do you love me more than power? Do you love me more than getting your own way in an argument? And if your answer is no, then he's going to call you into grief, which is godly sorrow, and he's going to move you to repentance just like he does me. And if your answer is yes, then he's going to then get you more deeply on mission. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, then feed my sheep. Pastor my church. Serve me and keep my commands. Now, I'm going to close the message with a quote from one of my favorite theologians, Kent Hughes, and he writes this. The abiding principle is that before all things, even our service to Jesus, we must love him with all of our hearts. Loving God is the highest priority of our lives. And this doesn't just happen in an instance, but gradually over a lifetime of walking with God and the Spirit of God pours love, Romans 5, 5, into our hearts, changing our desires so that we want to obey Jesus and his commands. And time after time, the Spirit of God is going to speak these words of Jesus into our hearts. Do you love me more than what? You're going to hear this your entire lifetime. And the answer is not 
greater obedience, the answer is actually much deeper. It is a heart filled with greater love. Because then you will keep my commands. Isn't that a beautiful truth? And it's so simple. And we often focus so wrongly on the obedience part. We wonder why we fail. We wonder why we keep falling in this sin. It's because we're focusing on the wrong thing. Do you love me? I think that's a good place for us to stop and enter into our week with. God, help me love you more. Do that work by your spirit in my heart, and my desires will change, and I will keep the commands of God. Amen?